There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie We're ready to go. Let's open up those phone lines now. If you have something to say, say it now. Phone 041-983-2000. Text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Wednesday morning, the 21st of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Using the D Hotel in Drogheda to house international protection applicants has been criticised heavily. There was the lies and misinformation at a far-right rally on Saturday in the town. A dark day for Drogheda, which saw the tricolour used most inappropriately as a symbol of division and act that patriots who see the Irish flag as a symbol of unity say was a disgrace then there is the genuine legitimate concern of local people about losing the hotel for tourism and the many special events uh, that would normally be celebrated in the D. The government is now trying to do an about turn despite the contracts being signed and says it is trying to do something now that it said last week was impossible and find a way for the hotel having a dual purpose housing immigrants and offering hotel accommodation and I, 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 I don't deny for a moment that the decision in terms of the use of the D hotel has an impact for that town I don't, I, I, I don't deny it and I know our department will be engaging today with Louth County Council at chief executive level in terms of how we can work together because we will work with all um, parties of good faith in Drogheda who, who want to make this work and the government will continue its commitment to Drogheda and that, that, that commitment is demonstrable I think in terms of the support for the Drogheda Implementation Board, in terms of support for a tourism in Drogheda, in East Meath so we can continue to, to draw people to that, uh, to, the, to that particular area so we will work and there are government schemes in terms, government has made it clear there will be a new community a round of community recognition payments again looking to target additional state investment 
in areas where, which are hosting significant numbers of both international protection and, um, and uh, U- U- Ukrainians fleeing the war. Now that's the Minister for Integration speaking last week about using the D Hotel to house 500 international protection applicants. The Minister last week said it was impossible to use it uh, in Two ways has been proposed, half the hotel for immigrants, the other half of the hotel for tourists or people who want to rent a hotel room. And he explained that the reason for that was because of child protection, child protection issues. Families would be moving to the D Hotel, he said. So it was impossible. Yesterday, the same minister, Roderick O'Gorman, said that the government is now looking at trying to find ways of doing exactly that. Let's speak to the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, who's on the line. Good morning to you, Minister. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Is the government now trying to renegotiate its contract with the D Hotel? Well, obviously, Michael, I can't get into a private contract. What I can say, and well, I, I don't think anything should be impossible, um, what I can say is that the Minister has said, yes, that he is engaging um, to see whether or not dual use could be used here in this instance. And how was it impossible last week and possible this week? That I don't know, Michael. Um, all I know is that the Minister is listening, and I think that's the most important thing. You, you discussed this last week, and I've, I've myself met with and spoken to a lot of people, not just in the town, but the surrounding areas. People have raised concerns, and I think it's important, and I think it's welcomed by many people that the Minister is listening and is engaging. He met with... TDs last week, myself included, uh, and I'll explain why, because obviously I'm not a TD from Laos, but I'm very close to Drahada, but also he's meeting with businesses this afternoon. You have the Chamber of Commerce, but also the Love Drahada Group, which represents quite a number of people, uh, and he's also meeting with councillors this week as well. So I think it's really important that the Minister is listening. He's taking on board the genuine concerns, while at the same time... So he was wrong last week. Well, I, I don't know if he was wrong or not. I think well, he was saying it couldn't be do. done. This week he's saying it could be done. Um, I mean, both sides of the story can't be right. Well, what I think he's trying to do is find a way forward. And I, I think that yeah, should so be it's welcome. Because, because, he's, it's because he's realised he was wrong last week, is it? Is that why he's trying to find a way forward after listening to people and so on? Well, I think the most important thing here is that he's listening to what people have to say. If he was to turn around this week and say, I won't meet anyone, I'm not engaging... I don't think people would appreciate that either. So it shouldn't be about whether somebody was right or wrong. It's whether no. or not he's willing to engage. No, I, 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 I know the minister is listening, but 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 what I'm asking you is: Do you think that after he listened, that he realised he he was wrong last week, and he's changed his mind, and he's now said that something was impossible a week ago is now suddenly possible? I can't speak on his behalf, Michael. I can't say why the minister has said one thing. It's a poor performance, I, though, isn't it? Well, no, I don't think it is now. I, I think this is a minister that has, in less than two years, housed almost 100,000 people. And I think for anybody to say that's a poor performance, that's incorrect. Uh, it's minister Gorman is someone that I know is a person of huge integrity. And okay, I'm not questioning the minister's integrity, I'm questioning the minister's performance. And um, what I'm saying to you uh, is, or what I'm asking you is, is it a poor performance for a government minister one week to say something is impossible and the following week, in the next breath, if you like, to say it is possible? Well, I can only speak on my own behalf and it's often been the situation for me and while I don't have an example off the top of my head, 
where I thought something wouldn't be possible. Uh, and I thought that based on the information that I had at the time. Mm. And sometimes things change, sometimes information comes to light. And yes, sometimes <clears throat> you do need to dig okay. that bit deeper and, and find a way forward that you didn't think was possible. But I think the most important thing for people here is that the minister is engaging right. and listening to the concerns. And, and, I, I and, really and, and, and because of his error, because of his error, uh, I, I mean, I presume he, he's conceded he made a mistake about this uh, or else he wouldn't have changed his mind so dramatically. Uh, because of his error, is he going to pay the D Hotel on the double now? Is he going to pay what the contract states uh, plus... Uh, the D Hotel then uh, n- not make rooms available to immigrants because uh, they'll be using them for tourism and charging for that. I- is this uh, an additional payment to the D Hotel? I have no idea, Michael, and it's not for me or you to get into contracts and what is a private contract with a private individual. No, no, it, it's, it's with taxpayers' money, Minister. I, I think I excuse I think me, Minister, with respect. Whether or not this is going to be used um, for international protection. Minister, Minister. Or whether there's going to be a change and what that means. Minister, are you saying that people don't have a right to know what the government is going to do with 25 million euro worth of taxpayers' money? No, I don't, but I'm saying no. I don't Okay, know. so what I'm I asking you is in relation to that, I'm because... Michael, I because questions that I don't know and I can say that now I don't know no you said so okay well, questions I, because it's a commercial contract but that of course will something be something that's made public but I don't know so I can't answer okay. genuinely something uh, okay well I what would you think of it what, 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 what would you what would you think of that if that was the case because the contracts have been signed uh, the D hotel uh, nobody has corrected us uh, uh, and we base this on 70 euro per pillow per night which is we believe to be the going rate uh, over the two year contract uh, will uh, receive 25 million euro from the government uh, for uh, the service that it will provide to international protection applicants. That's a, a, a legal agreement. It's a contract. It's signed and sealed. Uh, and if now the government is going to try to renegotiate that, do you believe that this will uh, uh, um, result in additional income for the hotel? And again, that I don't know because the negotiations are not something that I'm involved in. So if there were to be changes, that would common have to sense, be discussed. Though. It, it, it may or may not. And of course, if there were to be changes, people would have a right to know and a right to see what those yeah. changes are. But it's a I serious question for the government. I, Is the government just throwing money at this? I mean, 20, I mean, could, could the government have not bought somewhere for 25 million to house people? That's another question, isn't it? Well, I mean, look, we have a longer term plan that has been worked on and the minister will be bringing forward that proposal in a matter of weeks. There's a, a huge amount of intensive discussions that have been ongoing but it's been a very difficult two years in that we have had almost 100,000 people where we would normally have between three and 4,000 that have had to be housed. And I appreciate people want to see what, what is the longer term plan because we need one and we're working on it and we have to have one because this is not going to change. When, when will we see it? At the same time. Well, it's a matter of weeks is what I've been told. So I, a matter I of weeks, okay. And appreciate mm. that we would have that in a matter of weeks. But mm. I mean, I you know, you, you asked at the outset in terms of you know, the minister's approach. And I think importantly, he's listening to the concerns that are there. And you said at the very beginning before I spoke that, you know, there's a concern around tourism, there's a concern around people being able to stay, there's a concern around the impact on business. And that is what the meetings are about now today. That is what the meetings are about in the next few weeks to see can we still do what we need to do in terms of providing accommodation while not impacting on the town. After signing the contracts... 
Well, you know, some of these contracts are happening quite quickly because we are. No, no, but you you start talking to people. Uh, you t- start talking to people after you've signed the contracts. After you've committed twenty five million euro of taxpayers' money, you start talking to people to work out if there might be a, a negative impact that should be looked at before you go ahead and sign the contracts. I mean, this is doing, doing things backwards. If uh, what you're saying uh, is correct. If I could explain maybe the number of people that we have. So we have hundreds of people that are now coming in every week. No, I prefer, Minister, with respect to you, if, you, if you'd stay with the, with, with the issue at hand, which is the ham-fisted way that this is being dealt with very clearly from what we have heard this morning, that the Minister is now going to speak with people after the contracts have been signed about what concerns they may have before the contracts are signed. So he's gone about it backwards. He's committed €25 million of taxpayers' money to this and now has ended up uh, committing, uh, or most likely will end up committing more of taxpayers' money to this project unnecessarily. That seems ham-fisted and backwards. Uh, uh, Surely there's something more to say about that. There is. So you've asked me a question? I've started to answer. You've interrupted me. So if you want me to answer the question, Michael, you have to let me give the answer. I'm not trying to talk about anything different. I'm trying to explain when you have hundreds of people coming in every week, when we have in a lot of instances reached capacity in other areas, the idea that we would have prior consultation for weeks for every single element of accommodation, it's not possible. And I appreciate that is the way that everybody would like to do it, where you would have that significant level of engagement to make sure that everything that you're doing is you know, going to be approved or that everybody is in a position to be able to respond in the best way possible. That is, in an ideal world, the way that we would do this. But when you have hundreds of people coming every week where we had prior to COVID, you know, 60, 70, 80 maybe in a week, it's a massive yeah. difference and a change in just even how we can respond to this. Okay. And so it's not ideal. I fully accept you know, well, 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 what I've heard you say, Minister, what I've heard you say, Minister, what I've heard you say, Minister, is that your Cabinet colleague, Minister Roderick O'Gorman, has made a bad situation worse. No, I haven't said that. But you have. You've said we have, this, we have all this pressure. We make a decision. It's a bad decision. We realise we have to undo it. So then we have to run around and chase our tail and find a way of doing it and spend even more on it. That sounds like making a bad situation worse. Well, with all due respect, I think the fact that close to 100,000 people have been housed and in the vast majority of communities, it hasn't even been mentioned. In the vast majority of communities, including Drogheda, there have been significant welcomes to so many people who have come and there has been a huge amount of positive work done. We haven't always gotten everything right. I'm the first to say that and I've said it to you many times. We haven't always gotten things right. But where concerns are raised, everything that we can do, and the Minister included, he does to try and make what is a difficult situation better. If you could rewind the clock. If you could could rewind the clock. uh, What should have happened before the contracts were signed? Well, I, I don't think it can be like when you have a private contract here, you can't enter into negotiations with towns and businesses and communities with a private contract with an individual or with a, you know, with a, a private company. You can't include everybody in that contract. What he is trying to do and genuinely engaging with people to hear, well, how can we make a situation that is going to clearly be difficult for the town, for businesses, for others? better while you know anybody that I've spoken to it's not because there's international protection applicants coming in as a drought as a town mm. has been nothing but welcoming and the 
public reps. You know, I sat in a meeting last week with reps from all political parties. Mm. Everybody is welcoming of the people who need assistance. Will children be safe in the hotel? I, I absolutely believe that if children are placed anywhere, they will be safe. We have a duty and an onus mm. to make sure that they are protected. Because last week, last week... We do so in the most appropriate way. Last week, Roderick O'Gorman, who is also the Minister for Children, uh, was concerned about children not being safe in the hotel. Uh, will anybody be safe? In, will anybody be safe in the hotel, or is there risk? Of, uh, is there a risk of arson? Well, you said yourself, Michael. We had a protest over the weekend, uh, and I think what was very clear is that the vast majority who came were not people locally. People locally really did not want to be or play any part in some of the horrific vile rhetoric that mm. was spouted from the sages, uh, which was quite, to be honest, quite racist. Um, we have. A huge amount of work that Gardaí are doing, particularly where sites have been accommodation has yeah. been identified for potential um, uh, direct provision, and they are actively engaging with people on the ground. I know myself from speaking to people; mm. they are reaching out where they see any kind of a threat, even online, whether it's a big, you know, big accommodation or smaller, and mm. they're actively and proactively engaging with people as to how places can be secure. I mean, one of the most important things here is that people are prosecuted, and while I don't want to cross over a line and start talking about prosecution, Gardaí have arrested 12 people over the last couple mm. of weeks and I have no doubt there'll be more arrests. Ta- ta- talk to me, talk to me Minister, if that you would. Speech, Minister, talk to me a little bit more about the speeches uh, that uh, were given on Saturday in Drogheda. It was a dark day for Drogheda with uh, speeches that were filled with hate and unfounded accusations suggesting that immigrants are inherently criminal uh, and dangerous. Speakers spoke about murder. Speakers spoke about rape. Speakers spoke about sexual deviants who were a clear and significant and serious threat to children. The speakers who did speak in Drogheda gave the impression that each of the 500 people who will move into the D Hotel will pose a threat in relation to those crimes against local people. It was terribly unfair rhetoric promoting bigotry, discrimination and fear uh, that could have harmful consequences, as we all know. Uh, Under your hate speech laws, Minister, would those speeches be illegal? Well, to be quite frank, I think some of what was said certainly to me would be incitement to hatred. Um, while I wasn't there, I heard much of what was said. Uh, and I think some of the speeches in particular, certainly to me as a lay person, uh, were incitement. Um, and I think irrespective of my hate speech legislation, the whole purpose of that legislation is to update laws that we currently have mm. that don't work as effectively as they should. That's not to say, Gardy, don't investigate incitement because it is already a crime to incite hatred or violence against a person, but our laws are just, they don't take into account social media. They're not up to, they're not up to the, the standards or the modern world that we live in, and that's why I'm trying to update them. That's not to say that there isn't a law there already that mm. Gardaí can't work to. So just, I, I have to say that. So, you know, I, I can't say exactly what Gardaí are or aren't doing, but where people cross a the line, there is already a law, and I absolutely believe that some of what was said was pure incitement. It is not true. It is not factually correct to Mm. say that crime increases because of migrants. It is not factually correct to say that these people are here for any other reason than a better life. The same as any other man that we know, woman or child, who sought better lives when they left this country. So what they're saying, and you know what was heartening was the vast majority of people who were there were not from Drogheda. And I think 
really do not represent yeah. the fantastic people in Drogheda yeah. who no, have there, been nothing but welcoming there, over the there years. Was, there was 300 people there, no more than 300 people uh, uh, there on, on Saturday and just a handful of uh, people uh, who would live in Drogheda, to my eyes. Uh, I think you'd agree, Minister, that the Irish flag is a symbol of this country's identity, our values, our dignity. It represents all of uh, the people in this country, regardless of uh, their background or their ethnicity, uh, and uh, that it should be uh, treated, that the tricolour should be treated with respect and dignity uh, at all times. Uh, do you believe? And, and do you believe that the use? Do you believe? Yeah, do you believe that the use of the flag at a rally like that was a disgrace? Well, yes, I do. Um, being quite frank, and I, I would resent any person who uses what is, I believe, my flag and everybody's flag to send out that type of hateful signal. Um, there are so many people, 20% of people who live in this country uh, who are not born here, many of whom are now Irish citizens and who would hold that flag very dearly. You know, I get to attend. In fact, I get to give citizenship to people in really wonderful ceremonies that are so emotional and so special for people. And at those ceremonies, the Irish flag is flying and it is a very welcoming type of ceremony to tell people that you are now part of our culture, but to please bring your culture and integrate it and immerse it in what has been our history to become our future as well. And I resent anybody who uses that flag as a symbol of hatred or to try and send that type of signal. And I think we should all push back on it. And that's something okay. that I know you do, Michael, and I think most of your listeners would as well. Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm sure of it, in fact. Uh, will you be speaking, just finally, Minister, will you be speaking uh, to the Commissioner about policing people locally or anxious? I, I speak to the Commissioner every week, every couple of days. I met with him just yesterday and had a very long meeting on this. Um, there is a significant body of work happening um, which has been monitored at the top level uh, through the SDU, the, the Special Division Unit, and then filtering down into each area, each community. And I think it's important that where something happens locally, it is the local team that operates on the ground, but just to assure people all of what is happening or any information, this has been fed uh, directly to a central team that are monitoring and looking and making sure that where we can respond, where we can um, prosecute, where we can gather information, that that has been used to the best of our ability. I mean, Gardaí are, uh, I think, doing everything that they can here <clears throat> to try and respond to these attacks. And as I said at the outset, um, I think for people... You know, it's such a serious crime. Uh, you know, prosecuting and making sure that people are held responsible is is an absolute priority for the Gardaí here. Okay, Minister, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thank that you. is Minister for Justice, Finnegale TD for Mead East, Helen McEntee. Michael at lmfm.ie. The Michael Reed Show with Air Group. 086 658. Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Well, the idea of paying 10.45 for a pint of Rockshore cider raised eyebrows uh, this week. Uh, that's uh, the price uh, in Merchant's Arch in uh, Temple Bar, which also charges 9.10 for a pint of Carlsberg and 8.65 for 
for a pint of Guinness. They're not kind of prices that you get outside of Temple Bar, let alone outside of Dublin. Let's speak uh, to rural publicans. John Clendenin is uh, the president of the Vintners Federation of Ireland. Good morning to you, John. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. I suppose you're somebody uh, who understands uh, the cost of running a pub and all that goes with it. And of course, there'll be additional costs in Dublin and even greater costs again in Temple Bar. With your knowledge, what's your thoughts on charging 10.45 for a pint of beer? Can it be justified? Uh, Michael, good morning to you and all your, your listeners, first of all. Um, and look, I suppose 10.45, it, it, it is a lot. Um, but, you know, we do live in an open market. And, you know, in theory, uh, if any individual wants to set a price, if the market is willing to pay it, well, more luck to them. Um, but I think, you know, we need to be clear in terms of the average price uh, of a pint of stout in the, in the country um, is €5.50. Um, but I do think, you know, it is raising a question amongst a lot of our members mm in relation to what is um, the, the tipping point, I suppose, in relation to price increases. Yeah, and um, the reputation of the country, because uh, I'm sure that most of the people in, in Temple Bar are, are visitors to the country most of the time, uh, and they'll bring back with them these stories. You wouldn't believe the price of a drink in Ireland. Uh, absolutely. But, you know, publicans don't have a reputation for price gouging. Uh, and they don't um, endure price increases lightly. Uh, and a lot of consideration goes in uh, by the majority of our members in relation to what price they set in order to ensure that they're remaining competitive, in order to ensure that they're, they're providing value for money, uh, and that it complements a good quality offering. Uh, and I, I suppose what really this is doing is highlighting for us the increasing pressure that is coming on many businesses, uh, many publicans in particular, um, to decide how do they actually make ends meet. Uh, and we've noticed a considerable increase in relation to many costs right across the board. And the basic principle of business on a profit and loss is that you have to keep the, pro- the sales higher than the expenses. Uh, and the only way of doing that is is to actually set the price at the appropriate rate. And, you know, the cost of labour is going up. Mm. Uh, and in particular, this is a, an issue where, you know, the percentage of labour labor over overall turnover um, is, is, is high. Uh, but also in the past, obviously, we've seen many people have had issues with, with energy, uh, insurance, and just suppliers across the board uh, increasing prices. So we're probably at a, a point where many are asking, what, what is the price that we can actually endure without in, eroding margin and that has happened quite a bit mm. in recent years where we've 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 taken on uh, price increases from suppliers and they haven't been fully passed on to consumers so margins have been eroded yep. uh, and i suppose from a, from a government support perspective the increased cost of business scheme which is announced in last year's budget um, is due to be to be um, rolled out in the coming weeks and we would ask government to get that out as quick as possible because mm. pubs in particular do need it and i think also they need to be cognizant of the fact that considering the challenges that are out there that you know further supports will be made made available and a further, further contingency in relation to that particular scheme for the second quarter of the year uh, and additionally uh, you know many of our members will be in, involved in, in food service uh, and i think we need to have further revision uh, of the VAT rate from from 13 and a half percent back down to nine uh, and i think we need to really you know keep everything on the table keep open um, 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 conversations with government in order to ensure that that basically businesses remain viable 
uh, and that getting into business remains appealing to people right across the country. You know, many mm. small businesses are the backbone uh, of economic activity in many towns and villages, uh, and I think it, it, that has to be uh, protected as well. Somewhere. And do you think if these steps were taken to counter the cost of uh, doing business, that uh, it could lead to lower prices than that ten forty five for a pint in Temple Bar, or what was it you said, five fifty for a, a pint of stout across uh, the country? Yeah, well, look, there's a vast difference between, you know, 10 odd euros in one pub versus an average price across the country uh, of 550. But, you know, at the end of the day, I firmly believe publicans and, and it's a, we, you know, we don't we don't uh, direct any of our members in relation to what pricing they should charge. Uh, but I think at the same time, our members are very mindful that they want to offer a price that is reasonable, um, that they can, you know, that they can offer, as I say, an, an, an appealing proposition. Uh, and they're very conscious that, you know, our customers in this day and age have many other costs outside of, you know, their, the disposable income. And right now, in terms of, you know, the pub and what we have to offer, that comes with a cost as well. You know, if you look pre-COVID versus post-COVID, even the diversity that you would have seen, um, you know, how people got into to new areas within their own business, whether it be food, entertainment, uh, sports, you know, music and so on, uh, that all comes at a cost. And, and, you know, many may have taken out, you know, financial agreements in relation to it and have to pay it back. So, mm. you know, these are all things that need to be taken into consideration rather than just looking, I suppose, at the price of the point. I think at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is is, is protect in some way, shape or form an element of the, of the bottom line. But at the same time, we need to be very mindful of the fact that just how labour intensive the hospitality sector and the pubs in particular are in relation to doing business. All right, John, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for taking the time to take our call. John Clendenin is uh, the president of the VFI. Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. A lot of people in touch with us uh, this morning. Let me bring you some of uh, those comments that have been coming to us. Uh, Somebody saying if uh, this is public money that is being used, when when will we be told the details of how much the contract for the D Hotel is worth? Uh, we had John Conlon and Bally McKenney in touch with us uh, following our interview with uh, Minister Helen McEntee saying Minister Roderick O'Gorman is now saying it is possible to have a dual purpose hotel this week when he said it was impossible last week uh, just to uh, cover uh, himself. Uh, it, it, it'll no more happen. Do you think the people that own the hotel is going to give up guaranteed money? Uh, well, they don't have to give up guaranteed money if the money is paid to them anyway, John. And that was the purpose of the question. Will the hotel be paid anyway uh, in line with the contract and then the hotel be allowed to use some of the rooms for uh, normal uh, hotel, as normal hotel rooms uh, uh, that uh, you'd go and stay a night or whatever after a wedding or whatever the case may be. Ask the minister, he says, if uh, there's uh, refugees uh, going to be housed somewhere else, he says. I, 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 did, I wasn't going to ask the minister that. Uh, we're not going to speculate uh, uh, on buildings uh, on this programme. Anyway, John, I've had a few messages like that over the course of the last week. Uh, somebody else says Minister McEntee didn't seem to know anything this morning, didn't answer questions and was bluffing. Uh, said the caller. Uh, text them from Damien says, while it's very positive 
that the D might reopen for some level of tourist visitor occupancy. It would be concerning if the new owners of the D received taxpayers' money for the full occupancy of uh, the hotel for persons needing international protection and also visitor money on top of that for visitor rooms. In effect, the owners might be getting paid on the double for half the rooms on top of that. Taxpayers would be paying twice in order to rehouse the very welcome international protection families. Uh, A second facility would be needed for the half who won't be able to stay there, the 250, I suppose, or whatever it is. Uh, He says urgent clarity is needed from the government. Yeah, well, that seems a valid point. Uh, uh, all right, uh, Damien. Um, we'd uh, another text uh, from Shirley who says uh, she was at the march on Saturday and we didn't think of any hatred thoughts. We were just sickened uh, that one hotel in Drogheda is being taken completely uh, and the other hotels are half taken over. Um, thank you, uh, Shirley. Uh, I'm, I, I know that you didn't think of hatred. I don't think you would have texted if you had uh, thought of hatred to say that you didn't think of hatred. But some of the speeches that took place on Saturday were appalling. The idea of people standing up and talking about crimes, the worst, the most heinous of crimes imaginable to any human being on this planet, the crime of murder the crimes of rape, the crimes of flashing, interfering with children and putting them into the context, which is what happened on Saturday. These speakers got up and spoke about things that have happened and tried to give the impression, I take it, Shirley, you didn't buy it, but they tried to give the impression that the people coming to the D Hotel would commit those crimes because they're foreigners. It was ridiculous, it was inflammatory, and it was outrageous. It was disgraceful, it was a dark day for Drogheda. Thankfully, Drogheda boycotted the protest and didn't attend. It's a town that has a population of 41,000 people, no more than 300 people turned up, and at least half of them were not from Drogheda. Thank you indeed, uh, Shirley. She says anyone who comes to the town, the D Hotel, is the first port of call because it's so central, uh, especially if you're going to the TLT uh, for one of their Emerald Park nights out in the town. Uh, you'd book the D Hotel. She says that's why uh, we were there on Saturday, not uh, putting people into Mosny, um, give all those people a house as uh, they're here long enough, uh, in Mosny long enough, or even the hotels outside of the town like City North or the Pilo Hotel or even buildings that are empty years on end. But to take the whole working hotel over for a couple uh, of years is just shocking. She says, I, I do apologise, but it was nothing to do with the people themselves. And take that at face value Shirley and I appreciate what you're saying and I did meet a number of people on Saturday who said they were there for that reason um, they were and I'm sorry Shirley to tell you but you were standing with the far right it was organised by the far right and it was the far right who uh, tarnished the names and reputations of 500 people they don't know they know nothing about um, a, a quite incredible situation. 
Um, we'd somebody else uh, in touch with us saying the price of alcohol is ridiculous. Guinness used to be three twenty a pint when I started going to my local in Carlingford after a certain time at the weekends. The price of a drink would go up by two euro. That's uh, from Jerry in Dundalk. Thanks uh, a million, Jerry. Uh, I take it you're a bit younger than me. I remember um, when there was outrage when uh, the pint went up to a pound a pint. That was many years ago. Um, somebody else saying, I misunderstood your question to the minister. I just assumed that the hotel was going to be used for both, that they'd only be paid for the refugees that were staying there, says John. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. You see, that, that's the question, John. Um, the contracts have been signed for 500 people. Uh, and... Uh, we've made it uh, very clear from the day this news broke uh, that the going rate is €70 per pillow. Uh, That would be £25 over two years. And it's quite... If if it was to be dual purpose, literally 50-50, it's an easy calculation, isn't it? Um, That uh, £12.5 million uh, would be the contract for two years. But... And this is just... A hypothesis. If the government renegotiates this, um, I, I'm sure they'll pay the 25 million. They'll get uh, what should have cost 12 and a half million, and then they'll spend 12, 12 and a half million somewhere else. So that's 25 million plus 12 and a half million. That comes to a total of 37 and a half million. And the hotel then will have paying guests. Um, the minister said uh, it wasn't uh, an error it wasn't ham-fisted it wasn't doing things backwards that's what we heard this morning you make up your own mind 300 people can 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 you not count Um, this is uh, one of uh, these people uh, who was at the rally on Saturday I, I was there and I can count and I've counted many rallies and I can tell you there was no more than 300 people there uh, I saw uh, people trying to suggest on the internet there was 15,000 people there. <laughs> 300 people is all there and none of them from Drada, more or less speaking. Um, somebody else saying that uh, the Bettystown Court Hotel in Bettystown is idle uh, and wants to know, could that not be used uh, to house uh, people who are uh, seeking international protection? Um, we'd uh, a text then uh, from Pat in Navin uh, who says you're on about the price of drink what about the concerts uh, you had an ad there for ACDC uh, the price is 80 euro or, or, or something and the next breath fees may apply another RIP says Pat in Navin uh, price of concerts are very 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 dear across the board it used to be that concerts were cheap and records were very dear do you remember back in the day Pat when you went out and bought a record now you just listen to the music for free on Spotify so it's gone in reverse you get the music for nothing and then you pay for the concert and you have to remember that artists have to make a, a living and I think that that's the reason why concerts have gone so expensive but they are very expensive but the music is free for you to listen to at home. Weigh that up, whatever you will. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Now, let's uh, turn our attention to the ongoing controversies and crises uh, that surround RTE and indeed what has now turned into a dispute, it seems, between RTE and the government. Minister Martin met with the RTE chairperson and the DG yesterday 
to discuss the severance payments, or rather the exit payments, and she's been very clear, as have I, that we need maximum possible clarity and transparency on all these matters urgently. In re-emphasising the need for maximum transparency, Minister Martin has also received assurances from RTE that they will reassess the future use of confidentiality agreements and the capping of severance packages for senior executives. While transparency must be lawful and must have regard for individuals' employment and privacy rights, the DG has committed to seeking updated legal advice and he's committed to making as much information available as is permissible and publicly available. As, or rather, as is permissible publicly available. He's committed to providing an update in respect of this as soon as possible, and I urge him to do so. While the substantive legal advice is weighted, the DG did provide some further clarity with regard to departures of a number of former staff yesterday evening. He's confirmed that he felt a negotiated process to exit an individual from the organisation was needed in the context, and there were no grounds to dismiss the person but agreement that the interests of our team might be best served if the individual concerned was to leave voluntary. Both parties received legal advice on this, and the DG has stated his view that this may have, been, may have had a significantly increased cost to RTE were a dismissal to have been attempted. Yeah, that's uh, the Taoiseach, Leo Bradker, speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. He was responding to the Sinn Féin leader, Mary Lou Macdonald, who called for change to happen faster. Taoiseach, this uh, scandal uh, around Orti has gone on now for months. It's gone on since last summer. And you still talk about it as though you were some detached, inconsequential observer. You still can't give straight, concrete answers in respect of accountability, in respect of full disclosure of information. And you know, it, it, it's not at this point good enough for the Director General of RTE, or indeed for yourself as Head of Government, to continue to dilly-dally and delay on this matter. If RTE is guilty of drip-feeding information, which they are, and you have called out, uh, well, equally, you are guilty of gross uh, indecision and slowness, and sometimes an alarming um, but telling lack of curiosity in the questions that you've pushed to RTE. And the Taoiseach responded by explaining exactly why the Minister for Media, Catherine Martin, met with RTE this week. Minister Martin met the Director-General on the day the McCann report was published. And that report dealt with the voluntary redundancy schemes of 2017 and 2020. Uh, yesterday's meeting between the minister, the DG and the chairperson was in relation to their termination packages. And we need all transparency in relation to this uh, to the extent that is possible uh, within the law. So what about change and the recommendations made by the Future of Media Commission? In relation to the Future of Media Commission, Deputy, there are a lot of recommendations in the report, very good ones. Uh, we're implementing them all. Uh, there's one outstanding that we still need to make a decision on, and that relates to uh, the abolition of the TV, TV licence. Uh, as you know, uh, the Future of the Media Commission recommended exchequer funding. There is a real difficulty with that, Deputy, because exchequer funding means that the government of the day uh, would control how much money goes to RTE and the public service media. And I'm looking across at somebody who might be the Taoiseach in the next government who's currently suing RTE and would have a huge conflict of interest and people and people and people behind you who've sued RTE and taken a lot of money out of RTE, which was ultimately taxpayers' money, by, by the way, uh, uh, as you pointed out. And I think that's a real concern. 
Right, that's the sitting Taoiseach, Leo Vratker. I'm not sure what was most surprising about that contribution. Was it that Leo Vratker told Mary Lou MacDonald she could very well be the next Taoiseach? Or was it uh, that he made that point uh, about the potential for a conflict of interest uh, and how Mary Lou MacDonald <laughs> could be funding Orgy on one hand and suing them on the other? As I say, I don't know. Uh, maybe you'd let us know what you think. A lot of people have been in touch with us today and sharing their thoughts with us. Chris and Navin, one of them, he says, surely the money that is being spent on housing asylum seekers would be better invested in renovating old buildings that are lying idle all over the place and these could be used to house people who are coming into the country on a long-term basis. Uh, Claire and Dundalk says that the government always look for a quick-fix solution taking over hotels and costing millions in the short term. Thanks uh, for that, Claire. A text uh, comes to us, uh, I think, uh, I just need to get my... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Screen here, yeah. I think it's uh, from Mick in Kells, if I'm not mistaken, uh, who said, Michael, why did you ignore the text on the empty hotel in Bettystown? If we ask anything, we're all branded as far right. We can't afford to holiday in Ireland now, says Mick. Uh, some uh, interesting points. Our first point, Mick, I, I did mention the hotel in, in Bettystown. Um, you know, somebody called in and said there's a hotel there. Could it not be used? Uh, I think it was the same person, John Conlon, uh, who asked about a, another uh, building and if uh, it was going to be used, uh, if it had been decided to use it um, as uh, an accommodation centre. The reason I didn't want to mention that building was because we've seen rumours go around in the past, like that house in Leakslip, which was never intended for uh, the use of housing immigrants, uh, but it was burnt by somebody. That's why I didn't mention it, Mick, uh, in case somebody would decide, oh, I heard on the radio something like that, so I think I'll go and burn that house down because there's nutters out there listening to us. Nutters uh, who go around burning perfectly good buildings down. Uh, and uh, they believe it's a patriot, their patriotic duty or something, something mad like that. Uh, and uh, just on that note, Mick, uh, I heard last week uh, that people were sending air codes around 
uh, suggesting that the locations were going to be used to house immigrants. Very dangerous stuff. Um, I, I don't mean to brand anybody as far right. There's The cost of hotels are ridiculous, Mick. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um, somebody else um, in touch with us uh, saying um, there's heartbreaking stuff to watch uh, millions of people. Um, we'd uh, Paddy and Kells who says it's great the 25 million can be thrown to the D hotel by the government and yet the HSE can remove the funding for women who had mastectomies for bras that are necessary for these women. He says this country is a, a joke. Claire Mead says I think our government can do what they want. Millions upon millions of euro for housing people. Uh, 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 and uh, there seems to be no end to it but she makes the point that there's children with special new- needs who seem to be forgotten to see a doctor it takes two weeks no dentists for pensioners on and on she says she could go thank you Claire for that uh, we'll stay with that issue because uh, it was an issue that was raised in the Dáil yesterday it was announced that the largest hotel in Jorda the D Hotel with 113 rooms is becoming an accommodation centre for 500 international protection applicants starting from the 5th of March we were told that the Department of Children Equality Disability Integration and Youth will be managing the arrival of the people we were told that the provision of accommodation, health, education, income and other, other supports would be a whole government emergency response. And we were told that the D-Hotel signed a two-year contract. Minister, there was no communication with the people, the local authorities and voluntary bodies. So the question I will ask you, Minister, is what resources and what supports will the people of Georgia get? That's Peter Fitzpatrick, Independent TD for Louth, uh, who was putting that question to the Minister for Integration, Roderick O'Gorman. Thanks very much, Deputy, and thanks for your engagement, to dep- the engagement of the, the Drogheda deputies and of all the Louth deputies on this. I think there was communication, communication with, with yourselves, communication uh, with, uh, w- with, with the local authority as well. But absolutely, we need to bring, make sure we have the supports in place for uh, a significant number of, of vulnerable people in family groups. Uh, who will be using the, uh, the, the, the D Hotel as their accommodation. And our department will work, for example, with the Department of Education and the, the, the local education training board through the rail system, for example, in terms of the provision of, uh, of, of education supports. Uh, and I'll be meeting with uh, um, the um, Business Improvement District, with the chambers, to understand their wider uh, concerns on economic issues. And we'll uh, filter that back in in terms of the work our department does as well. Thank you. All right. That was uh, Minister for Integration Roderick O'Gorman responding to Peter Fitzpatrick in the Dáil yesterday. He took a, another question on this issue from Labour TD for Loud and East Meath, Jed Nash. Minister, one fell swoop last week, Drogheda lost 60% of its uh, hotel beds. The D Hotel will now be used exclusively to accommodate families who are IP applicants. Uh, government policy on accommodation serves, uh, serves neither vulnerable children or local fa- uh, and families of the local economy well. Now, you know that extremists organised a protest in Drogheda on Saturday. 300 attended. 40,000 Rohedians did not. Now, I told you, Minister, and you know this, this is only and ever about losing tourism beds. There is the evidence. The Drogheda is famed for its social solidarity and for its tolerance, and that will continue. But government policy does risk uh, you, turning fair-minded people hostile. Now, I made two constructive proposals on this issue last week. I said, firstly, that the D Hotel should be put to dual use. 
tourism and contracted use, and there are no child protections because we know right. that Time Ukrainian up, families are also hosted in hotels that are provided that are providing commercial use as well. And where there is a shortfall in accommodation, Deputy, the local authority, for example, should be should be supported to use taxpayers' money to turn around uh, buildings and repurpose local buildings for accommodation and long-term community gain where there is uh, a shortfall. Uh, will the minister Look. accept my proposals? Deputy Nash asked a question in relation to the D Hotel, and I'll ask um, my colleague, Minister O'Gorman, to respond quickly. And let's hear what Roderick O'Gorman had to say. We are examining the potential of undertaking dual use in the D Hotel. There are challenges to that, particularly where a hotel is hosting families, and as you know, that's the proposal in terms of the D Hotel, but we are examining that. And just uh, to confirm, I will be meeting with the uh, Drogheda Business Improvement District and Drogheda Chambers to discuss their concerns about impact on tourism. I have to say, Deputy Nash, I think it's a, it's a, it's a helpful su suggestion, and I hope it can be the, uh, the basis for moving the, um, uh, the issues forward. Right, that's Simon Coveney and Roderick O'Gorman, both ministers responding to Labour Party TD, Jed Nash, in the belief uh, that using the hotel uh, for a dual purpose is worth exploring and indeed a, a, a proposal that they are now examining. Uh, I think uh, we've spelled out uh, what that might mean in terms of uh, the cost to the Exchequer uh, on the programme already. Now, if you'd like to make a comment today, 0419832000 is our telephone number. That's 0419832000. Give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. You can also text or WhatsApp your message to us if you'd like to comment today. Our text and WhatsApp number is the same number. That's 0861800658. 0861800658. And, of course, you can email michael at lmfm.ie. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Let's talk now about uh, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. These are 17 goals for each country in the world to hope to achieve. The aim is of peace and prosperity for all of the people on the planet now and into the future. The deadline for reaching the goals is 2030. There's 17 goals, as I say. The top and most important goal of all is that there would be no poverty. How is Ireland doing? Well, let's hear a little bit about our progress in research in, uh, in uh, respect of all this. Suzanne Rogers, research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland is on the line. Good morning, Suzanne. Thanks for joining us on the programme. And you've been measuring Ireland's progress. Tell us more, if you would, please. Well, uh, as you kind of set out, this is a huge task. Um, these are 17 key goals that the 193 countries of the United Nations have agreed on. And I suppose the key is in the title, it's sustainable development. It's how do we how do we grow our economies? How do we grow our societies without jeopardizing sort of future generations? So you're right, the um, the first goal is no poverty. Um, and I suppose, again, we have to be kind of careful about how these things are measured. So Ireland does quite well in this one when you look at how poverty is measured in the SDG. So it could be things like, you know, the way you've got like that kind of, you know, people surviving on a dollar a day or mm. um, I don't have the figure off the top of my head. So obviously that's not the issue for this particular country. Um, so some of them do have to be sort of taken with, a you know, a little bit of a caveat. 
So we do this piece of work. We, I think next year might be our 10th uh, edition of this. So this will be the ninth one we've done. And we're looking at how we're doing versus our EU peers. Um, and we seem to be kind of coming out again, mid-table again. Um, you're looking at like the economy stuff, you're looking at the social stuff, and you're looking mm-hmm. at the environment stuff. And that's a big part of the message as well, is that how well a country is doing is not just your GDPs and your GNI stars. Yeah. It's not just how much money we're creating, because we can see that, you know, we're at full employment, and yet we have a problem with poverty. So... It's about really looking into the, the different things that we need to be living well. Mm. And there's 14 countries I- in Europe uh, that you'd compare Ireland with, is it? Yeah, so some of the challenges are about getting um, the same sort of the same sort of data that you can actually compare and contrast with the same sort of data. So that's what she was looking at was, uh, you know, because it's, it's Catherine Kavner from UCC who would do this piece of the report and she's trying to make sure that she can do accurate comparisons. So she has been able to get sort of 83 indicators across those 17 goals mm. and she's looking for, you know, because again, it'll depend on the, the data that comes out. So in Ireland, um, we've got the Central Statistics Office, we've got places like Eurostat. So that was a key thing for her is to be able to compare accurately. Like I, I was reading some other countries um, that you have to present your progress on the sustainable development goals to the United Nations. And I was reading some other countries voluntary national reviews last year and one country had talked about um, that, you know, between these two dates they had built X amount of cosy homes and I thought I don't know what that means. So you're trying to make sure that, you know, you, you can compare and contrast, you know, so is that just is that bedsits? Is that studios? Is that A-rated homes? So that was a real key thing, was making sure that you can actually make accurate comparisons. Okay. Uh, the environment uh, is dragging Ireland down in uh, progressing uh, as we might hope in achieving these goals. Yeah, so this is it. So we do we do quite well on the economy stuff, as you can imagine. Uh, we do quite well, I say, on the social stuff. This is a safe, secure country. Um, you know, in terms of education, we do really, really well. And again, it's the environmental stuff where we're just not at the races in this. So we've got all of the goals raising today to water quality, affordable and clean energy. I mean, that's a really key conversation considering that, you know, yeah. that the last two years we talked about nothing else but our ESB bills. You're looking at how we process our waste, um, responsible production and consumption. So all of those bits now, we're not doing so good on those ones. So and we're not, going to do, we're not going to do much better, it would seem, in uh, the coming years uh, because we've had the Climate Change Advisory Council say that we're nowhere near reaching our legally binding targets under the carbon budget. This is the thing, again, I get... I suppose, fascinated by in a sense, which is that we, we talk about the cost of transition and the amount of money it's going to cost to retrofit private rent or the amount of money it's going to cost to retrofit our bus fleet and all of this kind of stuff. But it's going to cost an enormous amount in fines if we don't deliver on our climate action targets. And we can see the damage that climate action is doing across the world. We can see, you know, we have these extraordinary weather events. We had floods last year in places where people never had floods. We can see that there's a cost linked to inaction. 
Um, so I'm always kind of I, I don't I sometimes don't understand why we're not doing more. Um, you know, at a, at a at obviously at a policy level, I think people are doing their best with their recycling and their you know their their consumption and all of that kind of stuff. But if you look at maybe our transport systems, you know that's going to have to be a systemic change. Uh, aviation, I think, is a, is a big issue here again. You know, the mm. rows over the the increase the airport because it's going to improve your economy. But if you increase the airport capacity, then does that have an impact on your climate action goals? So mm. we need to be much more joined up in our thinking with all of this. OK, d- d- t- tell me a bit more about the negatives, because I do want to talk to you about the positives, because uh, it seems that at a, a global level, we are actually performing quite well. Uh, but the environment or environmental issues are, are dragging our ratings down uh, o- under this uh, uh, a goal uh, to to uh, by 2030 to reach the goals by 2030. There's other problems, is there not, with infrastructure, gender equality, and agriculture? Maybe you'd uh, talk to us uh, about the problems that uh, we are, are seeing in this country in those areas. In terms of infrastructure, I don't think. I mean, you know, if I say housing, I think everybody immediately can fill in all of those gaps. So one of the goals is that kind of sustainable cities, sustainable development. Um, and again, how we build houses, where we build houses, that's all linked to our climate action. Every single month seems to have new figures for homelessness. Migration is is, is a fact. Um, when we look around the world at the moment, we have, I think, half of global adults will go to the polls this year. There's 70 countries holding elections. That may result in clampdown on human rights. We've got levels of conflict we haven't seen in almost 100 years. And we have climate chaos across the world. So people are on the move. We really do need to be factoring that in into our planning. Um, so, yeah, housing housing is a key issue. And I don't think we probably wouldn't have even needed to do this, you know, to be able to sort of point that out to people. Health, um, our transport infrastructure, again, I mean, you know, as soon as you mentioned the issue of rural transport, mm. everybody is... is um, you know, has big opinions on rural transport and, and how we're so reliant on the cars. Traffic, I mean, even just replacing your diesel or petrol car with an electric vehicle isn't going to make sitting on the M50 for two hours in the morning and two hours in the evening mm. any any less of a, of, of, of a, of a trudge. So, you know, th- there's got to be different ways of approaching these things and um, the gender equality piece that looks at things like women in um, political positions that looks at the level of women engaging you know kind of CEO level and I think that would be linked into maybe you know, the types of abuse that women would get once they go public and once they you know enter that sort of political realm mm. that really needs to be to be tackled anyway um, so there's lots and lots and lots of different things in there like it's, it's a big enough report but thankfully it's written in language we can all understand so mm-hmm. you know that there's a lot there's a lot we still need to be doing yeah and they're the negatives uh, but uh, overall we're, we're doing quite well we're eight out of the 14 comparable eu countries uh, and we do particularly well in education it seems extraordinary well in education i mean it's 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 exceptional um more and more and more and more of us uh, complete third level uh, more and more of us are, um, you know, we're, we're, we are an exceptionally well-educated country. And, you know, we can see that in terms of access to, um, you know, access to sort of 
apprenticeships again has been you know big focus over the last couple of years so that people have different ways and different routes into uh, furthering education we probably do need to be doing more I suppose looking at you know that tiny percent that aren't engaged who are probably leaving after I still call it the intercert it's called the junior cert and you know we've still got a small cohort of people who are leaving school early what kind of supports can we put in there but we're very well educated peace and justice we score really well on this is a safe secure relatively safe secure country um you know we've got again when you look around the world we've got transparent effective accountable institutions it's only maybe as you kind of look around the world at other systems we have access to our politicians it's a very small country we're quite well connected to each other we're quite well connected to europe um, we do really, really well as well. You know, the kind of um, good, good quality of life in our cities and yeah. communities still, good air quality, things like mm. that. And as a, a nation, we're in good health, probably or possibly uh, for those reasons or in part for those reasons. I mean, we're living longer. So that is a success story. Like that is that is brilliant, you know, that we are we are living much, much longer. And that is because, you know, we're better fed, we're better housed we're warm, we have access to community, we've access to health facilities, um, you know, saunas and swimming pools. And you know, I, I like to go to my local swimming pool and in the morning you'll see people maybe, you know, just walking up and down and doing their physio and then sitting in the jacuzzi. And I'm kind of thinking, you know, it's a long way from that they were born. You know, we, we didn't have these kind of things, when, you know, when we were kids. And I just think that that's brilliant. You know, we were connected now with men's sheds and women's groups and, and all of those things. And we really need to be protective of those, I think, you know, these are huge additions to our communities. Yeah, well, having said that, uh, we're very lucky to have been born in this country. And I think it, it's very easy to forget that. And uh, we certainly don't compare ourselves with uh, the rice farmers in China or uh, with those working for a dollar a day, as uh, the case may be. Uh, and as you say, it's a world that is full of wars and human rights violations, which is why there's so many people on the move. Uh, we are very lucky to have been born in this country and to live in this country. But could we do better, do you think? Always. Um, I mean, it's probably like a bit of a school report, you know, that there's going to be definitely areas for, you know, areas for improvement must try harder. So things like our waste, um, that's that's definitely a, a key area for, for improvement. Um, you know, our water quality, again, is a key area for improvement. That piece around affordable and clean energy, the percentage of renewables that we have. Uh, will definitely be key. I think retrofitting, and um, as you said, that will all tie into our kind of climate action goals. Um, so definitely there's a huge, huge, huge amount of work that needs to be done in, in those sort of spaces. You've got SDGs then with a look at industry innovation and in infrastructure. So things like our uh, research and development targets and stuff like that. So that's probably a little bit more sort of business focused, but they're the sort of things that we do need to be looking at. There's one here, like there's one of the SDGs is for zero hunger. And surprisingly enough, we don't do very well on that. And it's not because people are going hungry. It's because of our food systems and um, the, the levels of obesity and impact for some people that obesity can have on their health. So we do need, again, to be to be looking at these sort of areas as well. But you're right. I mean, this is, um, you know, the, the Ireland of 2024 is, is a real success story. Anybody 
who was, um, you know, who's been around sort of for, for a while will remember a very different Ireland. And, um, you know, people who, as you said, who come to, to choose to, to live here, it's because it's a safe, secure country. Um, and I just think that's a real success story. So, you know, again, as, as the man said, a lot to do, a lot more, a lot done, a lot more to do. Uh, and uh, I suppose you can uh, ask yourself, is uh, the glass half full or is the glass half empty? Uh, it's at the midpoint anyway. Uh, that seems to be the case uh, in terms of Ireland's ranking uh, in relation to comparable European countries. Thank you very much indeed, Suzanne, as always, for joining us on the programme. Suzanne Rogers is uh, the research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Now, speaking of the glass being half full or the glass being half empty, it does always depend on how you look on it. Uh, or quite often does, doesn't it? Uh, let's uh, hear an example of that uh, because yesterday, as you may have heard, the Children's Rights Alliance published its annual scorecard for the government on how it is dealing with children in this country or how life is for children in this country. Let's hear how the glass is half empty. Tishik, the Children's Rights Alliance in their annual report card gave the government a D minus for family homelessness. Child homelessness is up 55% since this government took office. We now have nearly 4,000 children growing up in emergency accommodation. There has been a 20% increase in family homelessness in the past year alone. How? Four years into this government, are we still seeing so many lives devastated by homelessness? How is solving this crisis not the primary focus of your government? Homelessness has a hugely damaging impact on children's mental and physical health, which can last a lifetime. Children who are homeless are more likely to be bullied. They're less likely to see their friends and they are twice as likely to be hospitalised. Real and lasting damage is being done to more and more children every day, every month, every year. And instead of moving heaven and earth to end child homelessness, the government withdrew one of the only measures to stop it. It lifted the no-fault eviction ban, knowing what the result would be. More children evicted into homelessness. The government did it anyway. That's Holly Kearns, uh, the leader of uh, the Social Democrats. So the glass is half empty. Let's hear how the glass is half full. I think it might be useful for people to know um, that of the 16 measures uh, that the Children's Rights Alliance rates the government on, um, our grades are up in four, uh, the same in 12 and not down in any. And I think it is important just to put that fact uh, before the House, um, the impression you created uh, would have someone outside believing um, that we've got a fail grade, um, which would be dishonest politics, Seppity. What's here in front of me isn't something I'm uh, delighted about, but the fact is, of the 16 measures that the Children's Rights Alliance looks at, um, our grades are up in four, the same in 12, and have um, uh, not gone down in any. Um, so in the reform of the childcare system, we've gone from a B to an A, uh, when it comes to free school books, we've gone from a B to an A. Uh, when it comes to children in special education getting an appropriate place, we've gone from a C to a B. When it comes to 
addressing food poverty in children, we've also gone from a C uh, to a B. Uh, so I think overall, if you look at that objectively, um, it's a story of uh, progress, uh, not a story of going backwards. And that's not my view. That's the view of the Children's Rights Alliance. But as I'm sure they would say, um, not enough, not soon enough, uh, and you need to do more. Uh, and obviously, uh, I, I take that on board uh, and agree that we need to do more. That's Satisha, Leo Branker. Two sides of the same story. All right, um, just uh, to mention to you, uh, if you've uh, children in primary school in Lismullen, you may be interested in our next piece. If you've children in primary school and they're not in Lismullen, when you hear our next piece, you may be very glad that they're not. 1800 658. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by Airgrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Pat and Carrick McCross rang us. He, he said Ireland is a rip off. Uh, he went to a supermarket to recycle plastic bottles, uh, the new refundable bottles. Uh, he had paid 15 cents. Uh, and he brought six bottles back but two of them wouldn't go through the system he says they weren't damaged in any way I ended up throwing them in the bin outside how is this benefiting recycling targets thanks Pat uh, for that Uh, just um, wondering uh, if you mentioned it to the people in the shop or if they could have assisted or if the machine wouldn't take the bottles if you could have put them in your green bin instead I, I don't know, um, but uh, I think we all have a role to play in recycling and uh, we can throw uh, the hat out or we can decide we're going to do something ourselves. John Androhada is asking about the D Hotel. He says, what's going to happen in two years from now? Um, will it continue or what will happen? Uh, well, I, I don't know. Um, I think it's the simple answer, John. Uh, and I think that probably depends a, a lot on the demand on government to provide immigr- uh, accommodation to Im- immigrants uh, seeking international protection. I, I, I don't know. What we do know is that the contracts have been signed for a minimum of two years. So after that, then, I suppose it's open to renegotiation one way or the other. Now, uh, speaking to you this morning from uh, the cosy, luxurious studios of LMFM, and very glad to be doing so, uh, given that I'm warm and cosy and not worried about uh, the place falling down around me. Uh, Not all of the people in this community are in that situation. Let's hear about life this morning in Lismullen National School. Due to substandard, wholly inadequate accommodation, the 269 children who attend Lismullen National School are denied what we would all expect as the basics. The building is totally outdated. The external space is similarly inadequate. Students are accommodated in small, cramped rooms. The original building was built in 1959, 65 years ago. The new building, so-called, was opened in 1992, 32 years ago. Prefabs, many more than 20 years old, make up the rest. This has a huge impact on teaching and learning for children and the work environment for staff and management. And to touch on a couple of aspects, heat. The building is so cold that the heating goes on at 4 a.m. in the morning to heat the rooms. The vast majority of that heat goes out the paper-thin windows, walls and roof. Staff and children are regularly forced to wear coats and hats during the day. Power. The fuse board is overloaded. It regularly trips. 
means that the usual ICT experience, uh, the children are denied that. Can't store the materials anyway because there isn't enough space. And moving on to the issue of space. There is no indoor space to gather as a school community for assembly or for sports. That means there's no PE in winter. Can't complete the dance strand or the gymnastic strand of the PE curriculum. Can't have Christmas plays, music and drama, events that ordinarily include an audience. The school simply cannot conduct them. Um, there's no space internally or to a large extent externally for sports. And this has an impact on the physical development and health of the student population. Children with additional educational needs don't have space for movement breaks, there's no sensory gardens, not to mention occupational therapy or physio. The pop group for sustainability cannot happen anymore. The buddy benches aren't being used for their purpose due to overcrowding. There's, it was a discussion earlier on in terms of, in terms of the, the hot school, hot meals program. Um, such are the constraints in this school because they don't have access to heating facilities for the food that they need to uh, 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 have a supplier that brings the food uh, already hot. And that is a significant constraint on the, 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 the number of options in terms of, of suppliers. Staff are doing their absolute best in relation uh, to everything they do for the children, but morale is dreadfully low. They have one toilet for 25 staff. They're working in the cold, and like parents, they see no light on the horizon. So, in summation, Minister, this is wholly inadequate accommodation for a primary school in 2024. It's wrong. It's as simple as that. The most recent response we have from the department is on the 23rd of January this year. They say there's a preferred, preferred bidder identified and my department will be in contact with the school and the design team in relation to the progression of the project. That's almost a month ago. That's Sinn Féin TD for me, East Aaron O'Rourke, who wants to know when will Liz Mullen get a new national school? This project is included um, in the Department of Education's construction programme, which will be delivered under the National Development Plan as part of the Project Ireland 2040 framework. The Department's planning and building unit is currently assessing its work programme and priorities for 2024 in the context of overall requirements. But my understanding is that Liz Mullen National School remains a priority for delivery in line with the accommodation issues that are present at the school. The tender process was undertaken and a contractor was identified. So the next steps for this project will be the completion of the tender process and progression to stage four. And stage four, as we know, is the construction. So I want to reassure the deputy and the Lisbon and National School community, if they're listening in, that the school building project will be progressed and delivered. And the Department of Ed Education will update the school authorities when there is a further update uh, on the progression of the major project. The project brief uh, for this project at Lismullen National School includes the construction of a 16-classroom primary school and the demolition of the existing school building. Uh, the next step uh, is that the major project is at an advanced stage of architectural planning, uh, stage three, the tender action and award, and the next step in the process will be the authorization to issue the letter of intent to the contractor. Um, and it will go to, the, to construction when the DU officials um, are currently determining 
the best timeline for proceeding to construction. So when the project commences on site, there'll be an estimated 20-month uh, contract duration. That's Josepha Madigan, the minister responding on behalf of uh, the government. And despite those reassurances, Darren O'Rourke remains concerned. This school was first accepted onto the, the list for new school bills in 2007. Um, there are other schools and parents, when I met with them last night, um, could point to other school buildings that went on at the same time, that went on um, eight years later and have progressed to completion or almost completion at this stage. There is huge frustration um, with, the, with the rate of progress here, Minister, and what the school population want to hear from you, and it is welcome that you say that it's a priority, but they want a clear timeline and a clear indication, the date on which the letter of intent will issue. Because that's, they, they have had the the real disappointment of a contractor pulling out in the past. There is, of course, the understandable concern that that's something that, that's going to happen again and that this is a, a, an horizon that is always just a step away. Like, there's a... Um, this is, you know, um, a, a really proud school. The whole population, the whole community are doing their level best, but they're not working with facilities that are suitable for in this day and age in 2024. And... What they're looking to you, Minister, and to the senior minister and to the department and to their local government representatives is a clear date on which the letter of intent will issue and that green light given to this project after many, many false dawns. Darren O'Rourke, let's hear the response to that from the government. And, and I do understand your frustration. Um, however, having read this brief myself in terms of the progress that is there, you can see, quite clearly see that there is a chronological timeline. I know that there was a planning permission that did lapse at one point and a new planning application was made to meet the County Council in July 2023 um, and then the final grant of planning was received in October 2023. But as you pointed out there, which I said earlier, it is on the priority list. Uh, the fact that I'm in the Dole Chamber here today answering your topical question um, I think will bring attention to this matter. Um, and I've no doubt that uh, it will be done as soon as, as possible. I mean, I, th I think you'll appreciate as well that since 2020... Well, we lose the minister there, I'm afraid. Uh, apologies uh, for that. Uh, but uh, I think, again, we're hearing the glass is half full. No, the glass is half empty. Uh, I'm sure people in Lismullen uh, will tell you that uh, the new school will not be built quick enough. Uh, you've been listening to Minister Josepha Madigan, who was responding there to Sinn Féin TD, Darren O'Rourke. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Stephen Athboy has just sent us a text and he says, Hi Michael, everyone is blaming the other for this refugee crisis we find ourselves in. Initially, we did the right thing, but the government thought by our reactions that this job would be much easier. Remember when everyone was offering up uh, a room for refugees, getting plaudits uh, from Joe Duffy every day for nearly two weeks solid. Surely even some TDs offered up a, a room in their family homes, but the realisation that this would not be a short stay dawned and excuses started to be the norm for not taking them. The far right have the public's ear. These are sad times in this text. I have no solutions and I am sadly not alone in this. 
Yeah, I think you uh, quite possibly speak for a lot of people, Steve. Thanks uh, for your message. Margaret uh, in touch with us too. She says, I don't know uh, about all of the venom or drivel that was said in Drogheda on Saturday by the so-called far right, but I am wondering if uh, the speakers were any of... Uh, the arsonists who set fire to empty buildings uh, or uh, did they know uh, people uh, who would have done that? She says arson is a serious crime that could end up with someone dead and I also presume that they know that arsonists are criminals. Should these people look in the mirror and have a good look at themselves before they cast aspersions onto people they know nothing about, says Margaret. Well, I'm absolutely sure that uh, none of the speakers uh, were involved in anything like that. They're aspiring politicians, I, I think. Uh, but I, I think uh, I understand your point, Margaret, that if you stir up uh, division, um, well, then you create a vacuum. And in that vacuum things happen that nobody wants and I'm sure the speakers in Drada on Saturday don't want buildings burnt down as much as anybody else but the world continues to turn doesn't it and every day we watch an atrocity taking place in front of our eyes many of them in fact uh, two in particular uh, the one in Ukraine um, which we saw a lot of on television yesterday because of uh, the second anniversary of the Russian invasion and every day there's the war in Gaza and the, the Israeli onslaught. Uh, yesterday, the United Nations Security Council uh, was asked uh, to call for a ceasefire. Uh, it was a motion from Arabic states that was once again vetoed by the United States. The United States is working on a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas, along with Egypt and Qatar. This hostage deal would bring an immediate and sustained period of calm to Gaza for at least six weeks. And from there, we could take the time to build a more enduring peace. President Biden has had multiple calls in recent days with Prime Minister Netanyahu, as well as the leaders of Egypt and Qatar to push this deal forward. And though gaps remain, the key elements are on the table so that if an arrangement is reached, it would help create the conditions for sustainable cessation of hostilities, which I know all of us would like to see. Of course, we want this deal to happen as soon as possible, as is shown by our exhaustive efforts. But sometimes hard diplomacy takes more time than any of us might like. Believe me, I understand the desire for the council to act urgently, to positively shape the situation in line with the Security Council's mandate. Still, that desire cannot blind us to the reality of the situation on the ground. It, and it cannot come at the expense of undermining the only, and let me repeat, the only path available towards a longer, durable peace. And that is why you've heard me say over and over again, any action this Council takes right now should help not hinder these sensitive and ongoing negotiations. And we believe that the resolution on the table right now would, in fact, negatively impact those negotiations. 
demanding an immediate, unconditional ceasefire without an agreement requiring Hamas to release the hostages will not bring about a durable peace. Instead, it could extend the fighting between Hamas and Israel, extend the hostages' time in captivity, an experience described by former hostages as hell, and extend the dire humanitarian crisis Palestinians are facing in Gaza. None of us want that. And so I reiterate the United States' belief that while numerous parties engage in sensitive negotiations, this is not the time for this resolution, which jeopardizes these efforts. Colleagues, I communicated our concerns publicly and privately over the last several weeks. We've submitted numerous rounds of edits. All were ignored. And so for that reason, the United States has offered an alternative resolution that would do what this text does not pressure Hamas to take the hostage deal that is on the table and help secure a pause that allows humanitarian assistance to reach Palestinian civilians in desperate need. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, uh, the uh, American ambassador to the United Nations, brings our program to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next program tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. Listen back to the Michael Reed Show podcast on lmfm.ie or the LMFM app. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.